0: This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair, number 72, June the 1st, 1984. This morning I was having a visit with a good friend of Calcedon and a good personal friend, John Bird, B.S. and Boy, Y.R.D. We met at 5.30 a.m. I throw that in so you'll appreciate how virtuous I am occasionally, and we were discussing, among other things, John Bell Hood. You will recall I dealt with Hood recently in the Battle of Franklin, and I used Hood as an illustration of a quality that some have claimed, especially some Southern scholars, was the uh, weakness of many leaders of the South, but which I said too often characterizes Christians and conservatives. Courage, daring, but too often a belief that uh, one single magnificent stand and the battle can be won they fail to see that we are engaged in something that is a long-term matter, and it's going to take quiet, patient work year in and year out for a long time before victory comes. Well, John Byrd was very emphatic in his agreement as to what I had said about Hood. Uh, John, by the way, is descended from men who fought in 1860 for the Confederacy. In fact, the family gave a a nine-and-a-half-acre battle site uh, uh, to be a war memorial. We were discussing also a book written in defense of Hood, John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence by Richard M. McMurray, a Southern historian, and published by the University Press of Kentucky in 1982. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, McMurray does not disagree with what we discussed or what was said in our previous Easy Chair. What he does, rather, is to call attention to the fact that Prior to the Battle of Franklin, Hood had a distinguished career. He had, as a very young officer, by the way, 33 years old, when uh, the war was underway, been notable uh, in several instances for his bravery. He does recognize that the Battle of Franklin was a disaster and that Hood must bear a good deal of the uh, responsibility. However, Hood had lost his leg. He had also had a real problem with a useless arm, and thus he was physically handicapped. And McMurray feels that this may have affected his subsequent behavior. He could not get around easily. Everything required extra energy and effort. And with a useless arm, it was not easy to mount a horse, to ride, or to do many other things. So he feels that, in a very real sense, Hood was not altogether fit for military service. He vindicates his promotion, however, by saying there was really no one else in the Confederate Army uh, with a record equal to Hood's or able to take command. At the same time, he makes a number of statements that fit in with what we previously discussed. He says that Hood was naive and romantic and this clouded his judgment. He also says that Hood's romantic, impulsive temperament seems to have led him to jump to optimistic conclusions. Again, he said, Hood's plan as he faced the Battle of Franklin was a wild dream. Thus, he sees some serious problems in Hood's ability to command at that time. Now, he goes on to say that Hood's failure was to be seen in the confusion and carelessness with which the campaign had been conducted, a carelessness typical of Hood's conduct of official business ever since he had misdated his acceptance of the appointment to West Point in eighteen. 18- Forty-nine or neglected to sign the oath relating to the lieutenant's commission in 1853, and so on. Uh, McMurray's point is that details, whether at his desk or in the field, were something that Hood could not cope with. Moreover, McMurray... Again, here is a Southern historian saying this. Concludes the book with this paragraph. It was Hood's friend, Mrs. Chestnut, who noted a comment that well summarized Hood's life. Recording a remark allegedly made by Union General Winfield Scott, Mrs. Chestnut wrote, General Scott on Southern soldiers, he says that we have elan, courage, woodcraft, consummate horsemanship endurance of pain equal to the Indians, but that we will not submit to discipline, we will not take care of things or husband our resources. Where we are, there is waste and destruction. If it could all be done by one wild desperate dash, we would do it." I don't think that fits a great many of the Southern leaders, but it certainly did fit Hood, And, as I indicated, Hood's life is important because too many of the men who head up Christian enterprises, too many Christians in the ranks, are ready to fight one battle and go home and not to stay for a long, hard war. There's another defect, and I'm going to go again to another man... Uh, for an illustration. Now, I did not take time to go into the life of John Bell Hood. He was a very fine man. As you read his life, you feel sorry that uh, Hood came to such an unhappy conclusion in his career. Had he not returned to active service, he would have ended the war as one of the lesser but distinguished officers of the South. He is an appealing figure in some respects, a tragic figure in others. Now I'm going to another man far greater than uh, Hood was. Not an appealing man, but a very great man, St. Jerome. Because I want to illustrate again a weakness that is so commonplace on our side. Jerome was a crotchety figure if there ever was one. He was given to all kinds of prejudices. Anyone who wants to reduce Christianity and the Church Fathers and the Middle Ages and the Puritans and anything in Christian history to a caricature can go to, and often do, Jerome, and they can find all their warped ideas present in Jerome. Jerome held, and I quote, a clean body and clean clothes betoken an unclean mind, unquote. Here was a man who had abandoned civilization, so to speak, and he was hostile to everything that marked civilization. He was emphatic about the sexual act as being intrinsically defiling. He had an uncritical credulity. One has to say about Jerome that he was a nasty person. He never missed an opportunity to uh, be nasty. He was a brilliant scholar, an exceedingly learned man for his day, and the Church, because of his scholarship, is permanently indebted to him. And yet, as far as an influence uh, for good comparable to Augustine and to many other figures, some far lesser, it, it just wasn't there. Jerome's work in the scholarly field makes him memorable. But when it comes to anything else, He was not. One of the problems with Jerome was he had an end-of-the-world mentality. He was a lot like those nowadays who have rapture fever, which is exactly what Jerome had. He was always talking about the breakdown of civilization, which was real. He was insistent that uh, Antichrist was almost there and the end of the world was soon coming. As a result, there was no concern about building for the future. Part of his uh, extreme asceticism was occasioned by the fact that he didn't see any future And people who were marrying and having children were a part of a world that was going to disappear. Now, here was a man who could have been a tremendous force in reshaping the future. Civilization was collapsing. It needed direction. Jerome gave it none. None whatsoever, precisely because of his end of the world mentality. And this characterizes today a large segment of Protestantism. Like Jerome, these people, without having Jerome's abilities, are throwing away a tremendous possibility. For good, simply because of their end of the world mentality. Well, just a minor sidelight. One of the interesting things is that uh, Jerome was particularly harsh in his condemnation of Stilico and regarded Stilico as a traitor. Now, this is an interesting point, because Jerome was very much a part of the Greco-Roman culture. He was, in his temperament, a gentleman, and a lot of his lordly, nasty ways (laughs) were a part of the uh, old Roman sense of authoritarianism. Dillico was the great general of the armies before Rome fell. He was at least half vandal, a barbarian who, like many another barbarian, had become a Roman soldier and arisen in the ranks. When the barbarians made their last foray into the empire which led to the conquest of Rome. When possible, Stilicho fought and defeated them. On one occasion, when he realized that battle was dangerous, he persuaded the Senate to pay a huge sum of gold uh, to the barbarians to hold them off or at least give them an opportunity to spend the money while he prepared further for them. Now Stilicho was the only brilliant military man Rome had. They also knew he was very popular with the troops. No one else could have led them no one else was trusted. Because they were afraid that Stilicho, having saved Rome, would then make himself emperor, the authorities in Rome ordered his execution. The amazing fact is that Stilicho was so loyal to command, so faithful, a military man, that he urged his men to continue to obey and to defend Rome under the vice commanders and handed himself over to execution. And he was executed in the presence of the troops. At a word from Stilicho, they would have all risen in rebellion. What happened, however, was that instead of continuing to fight under others, the army just melted away. They did not see Rome as worth fighting for when it did this sort of thing. Well, Stilicho had a vision of the future. Jerome did not. And Jerome despised Stilicho, as a barbarian. I'm afraid there are a great many people today who are inferior Jerome's. They look at the migrants who are in this country, they look at all kinds of groups, rather they look down on them. They see no hope except themselves. Their class. And like Jerome, they only look backward or look to a rapture. That backward look, that desire to reproduce the past, is nonsense. Christian reconstruction means reconstruction in terms of God's law, not in terms of anything that existed in the past. Everything in the past must be judged in terms of the law of God. We are in times that call for a reconstruction. I have been, as some of you know, working on a study of church and state. In the process, I've been doing a vast amount of reading in a variety of fields. In fact, Among other things, this morning I was returning to John Byrd about a dozen or more books that uh, related to the matter. Well, one of the things I looked into was uh, a study by Henry A. Mess, M-E-S-S, an older study of some years ago, which begins as it deals with the state that this premise, man is a social animal. In terms of that, of course, there is nothing that uh, can exist above and beyond the state. The state is the highest point in creation. And he says that, uh, and I quote, it is a distinguishing mark of a state that there is no authority external and superior to itself, unquote. In other words, the state is God walking on earth, nothing greater, nothing higher. Well, of course, this is the root cause of our problem. It is this faith that has created the modern world. Man has abandoned God, left him outside of consideration, and the result has been a disaster. One of the books that I was looking into, an older work, again, that I read some years ago, Frank Emanuel's The Prophets of Paris. And in the course of it, there is an interesting comment how with the uh, philosophes, the Enlightenment thinkers of France, liberty changed its meaning. We assume that liberty always had the same meaning it has today. Liberty in the Middle Ages had the connotation of a privilege. It meant that you had a responsibility and a privilege that went with that responsibility. Now it came to mean freedom to do things irresponsibly without accountability to anyone. It came to mean license. And of course, the consequences were that men began to be more and more irresponsible. In another older work, Roger Shattuck, The Banquet Banqueteers, Shattuck makes the point that the uh, leaders in the avant-garde world of art in the last years of the last century and up till World War One spoke of the gratuitous act as the instance of human freedom. In other words, if you did something for no reason at all, then that was freedom. Lindner wrote a book some years ago about delinquents entitled Rebels Without a Cause. Now that, on the level of crime, illustrates exactly the idea of freedom that was born with the Enlightenment. The gratuitous act. Doing something wholly, spontaneously. Unmotivated evil is the term that Shattuck used. Unmotivated evil. Think about the kind of crime you read about regularly, senseless crime, people shot by hoodlums who had never seen the person before, the gratuitous act, unmotivated evil. To have no reason, it is this that makes them little gods to be without responsibility to anyone. This is, for them, complete freedom. Now, this kind of thing illustrates very clearly the modern temperament. When people say they want to get away from it all, what they're saying is they want to get away from responsibility, from motivation, Now, as it is commonly used, it has a somewhat harmless connotation, but its roots are in this new concept of freedom that came with the Enlightenment, to escape from the world of responsibility, of accountability, to step out of God's world and perform the unmotivated act. And since God has preempted what is good, Then, as Camus said, it leaves us one choice. The area of freedom is the area of evil. Thus you have what you see all around you today. It is interesting, by the way, that uh, Manuel and the Prophets of uh, Paris points out the kind of thinking that these philosophers indulged in. The idea that any person should endure the trauma of rejection was to them unthinkable. In fact, Fourier, a later figure, went through a great deal of convoluted thinking to try to develop a system where no woman would have to say no to any man, even if if all that was asked for was a dance. A world in which no one was refused. That was the goal. A world in which no one's feelings could be hurt. Now, again, this should sound familiar to you because it is the kind of child training a great many parents indulge in. They don't want to hurt the poor darlings. They don't believe in original sin or depravity, and therefore they are out to do all that is possible to avoid a decision. And uh, to say the obvious thing or to do the obvious thing cannot be done for them. By the way, completely extraneously, that reminds me of the story of a man who, after about 35 years and 28 children, went to court and asked for a divorce on the ground of incompatibility. And the judge said, I find it hard to believe that you are incompatible. You have, after all, had 28 children. And the man said, well, sir, I was trying to lose her in the crowd. (laughs) Well, on now to another subject. Watches have always been uh, very interesting to me. So uh, I enjoyed reading a book that uh, deals with clocks And the making of the modern world. David S. Landis, L A N D E S, Revolution in Time. And he speaks of the significance of the clock in the Middle Ages and how time now moved in terms of the canonical hours. But this, I thought, is uh, interesting quoting from page 92 of Keeping Time, which, by the way, is a current work published by Harvard University Press in 1983. It is ironic that Weber, who spent a lifetime seeking out and studying those characteristics that set Europe, and especially Calvinist Europe, apart and created capitalist man, never hit upon this aspect. He would surely have seized upon it with delight. For, to paraphrase his own formula, what the clock was to the cloistered ascetics of the Middle Ages, the watch was to the in-the-world ascetics of post-Reformation Europe. The latter, in turn, usually brought their timepieces from Protestant makers. Calvin himself, so impatient of ornament and distraction, accepted the watch as a useful instrument and thereby enabled the jewelry trade of Geneva to save itself by reconversion. Augsburg, the leading German center of clock and watch manufacture, was a city divided between Catholics and Protestants in a Catholic countryside. In the period 1500 to 1700 of 189 master clockmakers whose religious affiliation is known, out of 284, 165 or 87.3% were Protestant. Meanwhile, in France, overwhelmingly Catholic, but with a small active community of reformers, a disproportionate share of the leading watchmakers of the 16th and 17th centuries were Protestant. No one, to my knowledge, has done a quantitative sample, but a quick look at the standard biographical dictionary of French clock and watchmakers by Tardive reveals the high frequency of makers with Old Testament names, the Davids and Daniels and Isaacs and Samuels, that were then characteristic of Protestant faith. So when Louis XIV reversed A near century of tolerance and revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685. He drove 200,000 Reformes from the country and devastated the French watch industry. Some of the best of these refugees went to England, where the trade needed little help, but others went to Switzerland, where they did much to establish the mountain manufacture that would one day dominate the world, unquote. Let me say something further on the subject. It was this sense of the value of time and the importance of the watch and the clock, the stress on the sentence from St. Paul about redeeming the time, that gave... Calvinism and Puritanism, its particular vitality. This emphasis on time led to the greatness of the United States. We also became a watchmaking center. The interesting thing is that in my lifetime and yours, we have seen the United States decline as a watchmaking center, and we have seen a contempt of time as a value, a deliberate premium put upon wasting time, le- leisure or leisure time, and we have begun to fade as a country at the same time the importance on uh, of time and an emphasis on watchmaking has moved westward to Japan despise time and you despise your own future It's time we gave serious consideration to that now on to another subject, one of the interesting books I read recently, not available and not of general interest, was on The Revolution's Privateers by C. Keith Wilbur, published some years ago. Privateering is something we do not hear much about today, but the... Interesting thing for us to remember is that uh, the Constitution in Article 1 gives Congress the right to, and I quote, declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. Letters of mark and reprisal were, meant that people went into. Uh, legitimate piracy, so to speak, legal piracy. They were commissioned to be privateers, so this was free enterprise in war and uh, was once highly profitable. It helped uh, England rise to ascendancy as a naval power, and it certainly helped the United States in its early years an interesting sidelight on history that we tend to forget. And while we did have some weaknesses as far as free enterprise is concerned, we did have, have some areas of strength. And we still treated war as an area of free enterprise in those days. Now, on to another matter. I think it was before the election of Truman. Now, that's a long time ago. I wrote an article and uh, sent it to several magazines of the day, and it was routinely rejected by them all. And... Some few years ago when I encountered it, I reread it and thought it was quite good. <laughs> so I'm going to discuss it because this is an election year. What we fail to recognize is that because of a little gap in the Constitution, we now have a system of government which ensures minority rule. It ensures the fact that militant, single issue minorities can capture and dominate the political scene. Why? Well, the Electoral College, as it was designed and as it should again be, was meant to be a key point in the American system of government. What the Constitution specifies in Article 2, Section 1, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And so on. Now, This is in the Constitution in the section on the executive branch of government. Very interesting point. So the Electoral College was intended to be an important aspect, a key aspect of the executive branch of the United States government. Moreover, did you note what the electors were to be. One for every congressional district and one for each senator. So there were to be two electors at large from each state and then one from each congressional district. Now, they did not tie the electors strictly to the electoral district. This was the gap. They meant it to be so, but they hesitated to tell the states what to do. They believed it was the only sensible thing to do, and they left it to the states then to require it. What happened? Well, for about... 30 to 50 years. This plan was followed. It meant that each state elected from each congressional district an elector. This man now had an executive position. They voted also for two at large in each district. Thus, it would mean that you would have one elector to represent your congressional district who was then to vote for the candidate that you in your particular district voted for. The net result was, when the electoral college met in the initial balloting, there might be half a dozen men from each state who had votes for the presidency. This is routine. So that there might be, from New York State, two for one uh, man, three for another, and so on. And commonly, New York, for example, would have four or five men whose presidential candidacy had some electoral votes. This was true across the country. Then, as the balloting continued, the electors would have the option of discussing on the floor and off the floor the qualifications of the various candidates, switch from one to the other, and then choose who was to be president, and who was to be vice president. Now, this gave us very good government as long as it was applied. What happened was that in the mid-1830s, some of the uh, politicians began to realize that if they changed the system to winner-take-all, then all that would be needed to capture the entire state would be to have a swing vote of single-issue people. And they found those single-issue people, the abolitionists. The interesting thing is that in 1800 and 1820, outside of South Carolina, the southern states were agreed that something had to be done to abolish slavery. Virginia came within one vote of doing so at one time. The only issue was how gradually, that is, with each new black child, independence for all those born, all at once with compensation, in which case who was going to compensate the owners, and so on. The abolitionists made the South defensive of slavery. Well, in some of the northern states, as these abolitionists now began to dominate the campaigns, It altered the course of American history. And little by little, all the states swung over a period of time to the single-issue voting as the domineering fact. And we have since then had this country very much steered one way or another by these single-issue voters. It also meant that previously... A political boss could only control a congressional district. Now it meant that a political machine could dominate the state if it could placate the single-issue voters. This one point has continued to create nothing but damage for the American system. Now, periodically it is propose that the Electoral College be abolished, which would only confirm the evil we now have. It means the majority takes the state, uh, and the majority usually means that the single-issue minorities are the ones who are placated. And those who are routinely loyal to their party, are routinely kicked in the teeth as the party satisfies the single-issue voters. So I don't believe it's a third party that's going to change the picture because you still have this problem. And it isn't going to be capturing the machinery, although that has to be done, of either or both parties. It means returning to the significance of the Electoral College and tying it to the the, uh, Congressional District. Then you will have a valid representation in the Electoral College and in Congress as well as the White House. I live in a county with maybe 20,000 people. We are only a small part of a predominantly small town and rural congressional district. There is no way we can ever really dominate nor are other communities like us a presidential election. But the country as a whole is made up of districts like ours. To go back to the electoral college will give populations better representation. The urban area will have a fair representation in terms of its population, its congressional districts the rural area will have no more and no less. But it can be heard in the Electoral College then, and now it cannot be with the winner-take-all method. Well, I wish somebody would pick up on this fact and do something about it, because I do believe it's a very important matter and important... To our future as a country. Last time I dealt with the contents of an older textbook. I have with me today, from the 1890s, I believe 1897, yes, a silver burdette, second reader for second-grade children stepping stones to literature. And it is slightly Christian here and there in a way that the 1919 one was not. It does stress a lot of good moralistic fables. For example, uh, The Blind Man and the Lame Man Uh, then uh, Chicken Little, which I enjoyed very much as a child, the Bundle of Sticks fable. Some of you will be reminded of your own schooling by this. And... uh, The hare and the hound, the tortoise and the eagle, and so on. And then a a number of little stories designed to teach, like this one, The Boy and the Nuts. Once upon a time, a boy saw a pitcher of nuts standing upon a table. What fine nuts, he cried, I must have some. So he thrust his hand into the pitcher, but when he tried to draw out his fist filled with nuts, the small neck of the pitcher held it fast. He began to cry. What is the matter? asked his father. I cannot get my hand out of the pitcher, the boy replied. Why not? asked the father. Can you tell why? (laughs) Little things like that. Now, the idea that anything in a school reader that would teach practical wisdom or godly wisdom is taboo. It's regarded as unthinkable. Well, uh, in a moment to some uh, more poetry from songs from the Psalms, but this little story I like. Quiggle had been looking around for just the right church to attend. One day he dropped into one as the congregation was responsively reading, We have left undone those things we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Quigley sighed with relief. Thank goodness I have found my crowd at last. Well... Back to reading some of Toyohiko Kagawa's Songs from the Suns. Unfortunately, out of print now. So much here. Let me see. Where will I begin? Mokuran, above the temple wall, great waxen blossoms bloom. Gleaming boughs alight with white against the gloom, beautiful from morn till even up up they climb, trying to peep at heaven. Flowers alone, green leaves not yet unfurled, the only lovely flaunting things in all the chill, drab world. The earth and I are drab and tired, but very, very soon we shall be mad with beauty when the fairy cherries bloom. This one, the moon looks down. A drunken man was going through a soldier's drill outside my door. About, face, forward march, he called. The alley echoed to his fierce commands and trembled to his tread. Suddenly I sprang before him, mimicking his words, About, face, forward, march, repent, and turn to good. But I was frightened at my own loud voice. And as I lit my lamp, my knees began to shake because I thought, What if he comes to stab me with a knife? But no, he entered, saying yes. Your words are good. Yet as for me, the God of heaven has cast me off, and how shall I believe that he will save? But say that you will save me, for I know that you are on the slum to save the poor who come. Troubled, there I sat upon my pallet. What to say to him to move his heart? And last came words of love, silently. He sat and listened. After me, my helper friend, Hasukajima, word by word, slowly, word by word, showed him our Lord. Then the drunken man burst into weeping as he told his tale. When he was two weeks old. His mother cast him out on the sea beach there to die. He cursed her for a harlot bitterly. When he was grown to fifteen years, he drew a sword upon a man demanding money and to hide a theft burnt down a home. Nine years he was in jail. He took with shobbing as he told his tale of Vagabond, the sad slum's masterpiece. And as we heard his sins, we wept with him. Wildly, he wrung his hands and rent his clothes in grief as he implored forgiveness. Softly, we soothed his fears, knowing we find the Christ through tears. I prayed, then, Torah said, Tonight I sleep with you. I threw my door ajar and looked up at the winter moon. And even there in that clear, cloudless sky, I could not see the beauty passing by. The moon itself seemed drunken, weeping, lost. Asuka Jima knelt with me down in the dust to pray. The clock strikes midnight. Far away, the moon looks down upon the slums, touching the little homes one by one. One by one. Still sobbing, Torah comes naked and runs to turn a cold stream of water on his body, sobering himself from sake. The moon peeps through the tattered door, silvering the filthy walls, watching us sleeping on the broken floor. And this one beside my brazier. Unloved and lonely, here I sit, leaning against my brazier. Now and then I raise myself to rake dead ashes. Listlessly, I look about the room. Newspapers pasted on the wall show pictures of a worthless world. I cannot sing for doctors have forbidden it. They cannot forbid my prayers. I have forsworn a learning and love. Lonely I sit and only cry and weep and sob. O oh, devil world, I pile tears upon tears till I am spent. But not, not yet will you repent. God, how I long for thee. All feeling else is gone. This three-mat hole where sunlight never strikes, this poverty so dread that I would fain cast out the cat I cannot feed. let cat that comes again and yet again, but I am satisfied, satisfied. My eyes behold thee here, and when I close them, I can feel thee watching by my side. Farewell to paper-pasted log. I get me up and shove my shoddy sandals on. Throughout this land I go to preach. The kingdom is at hand. Nkagawa refers there to the fact that he was forbidden to sing. It was because he had tuberculosis at the time. Well, our time is again up. I look forward to these sessions with you. It gives me a chance to share with you some of my thinking and my reaction to my reading. I still think my article of a good many years ago about the uh, Electoral College was a very good one. But no one seems to be interested in the entire subject. Well, so much for that. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.